Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Plasma has a nickname. It's called liquid gold. I compared the price of plasma to the price of gold, and it was much more expensive. Douglas Starr wrote the book on blood. Blood is something that just goes to the heart of us and who we are and how we think. And I can't think of any other part of the human body that carries such resonance. He tells me how this natural life force came to be such a precious material. The story begins in ancient times, with a mystical reputation. Blood was sacred to the Egyptians, to the, to the Romans. The Greeks saw it as one of the four humors. and It was thought to ebb and flow through the body and maintain the balance of everything. And that's why when people were sick, physicians would erroneously bleed them. The meaning of blood is fluid through history. From the Bible to the Gothic, it has the power to give life and take it away. Why is it that the vampire Dracula drank people's blood? Because there's something scary and mysterious about blood. With the advent of the modern age, it lost its mystique and became a tool in war. As blood was shed on the battlefields of the Second World War, plasma became a saviour of wounded Allied soldiers. We had a program called Plasma for Britain, in which blood was collected in New York City, spun out, and tons of it were shipped to London to help during the Blitz. Blood collection was top secret. And while the Allies had thousands upon thousands of gallons of blood coming in... The Nazis had virtually none. Out of the ashes of war came a new era of advanced surgery and medical treatment. More and more blood was needed... And so began the plasma gold rush. And this is when people came up with all sorts of ways of collecting blood on a larger scale. The race was unbridled. Pharma companies went into prisons and nightclubs. They travelled abroad and sought out new populations to bleed dry. The third world was mined for its plasma. In South Africa... Dealers exchanged pints of plasma for glasses of orange juice. Nicaragua generated 10% of the world's supply in an area nicknamed the House of Vampires. Controversy there sparked a revolution. And in some places, the farming of blood outstripped that of natural produce. Next to bananas, plasma was probably the second 
biggest export of Costa Rica. That's when the comparisons with the oil industry began. America had become the OPEC of plasma. And the people who dealt in plasma got richer and richer. Like with any industry where money flows, even the business of blood had the potential for exploitation, for profit to come above all else. And so this natural force within us became a vital commodity, liquid gold. I'm Cara McGugan, and this is Bed of Lies, Episode 5, Violation. I've been circling the same period of time, going over and over events and documents from the 70s and 80s. I've asked the same questions again and again. What was known? Could something have been done to stop the disaster? Who was responsible for Brian's death? The answers get bleaker and bleaker. I'm now looking into 1982. It's the summer when Claire and Brian got engaged. He asked me to marry him just before my 21st birthday, which was July 1st. They're the couple who wore leathers and were from the Midlands. They went to Iceland together. I've just seen the first waterfall. It's just fantastic. It's a year before the British government started to miss critical warnings. But in America, the signals began earlier. Remember that warning their Centres for Disease Control, or CDC, sent to Britain? I suspect it is a matter of time before you begin to see cases in the United Kingdom. In January 1982, the first American person with haemophilia died from AIDS. Before long, more cases appeared across the states, and the CDC started to get worried. When was the earliest date that you have evidence of pharma companies knowing of HIV being transmitted through the products? It was a memo uh, between a couple of guys at Cutter. Saying I'm talking to Michael Baum, the lawyer from California. Cutter was part of Bayer, one of the four companies who were making commercial Factor 8. The others were Baxter, Alpha and Armour. I've seen this memo. It's an internal note from August 1982. The CDC has told them there's a link between the new disease in the gay community and their plasma collection. They probably need to cut that back uh, for political and safety reasons. The people at Qatar say they'll look into it, but... They wanted to do it quietly because they didn't want to alarm the world and get in trouble for it. The American government sent another warning about prison plasma. But they gave recommendations instead of orders, and the companies took months to wind things down, even as it grew clear that HIV was in their blood supply. And once they did, they still kept using the plasma they'd already collected, which was in their warehouses. So by the next year... I asked one of the representatives of the companies... What percentage of the product was infected after March of 1983? Tom Mull, the lawyer in Hawaii who got a guilty verdict against the pharma companies, has a terrifying statistic. Much to my surprise, he was very honest and said, oh, it was all infected. Every single vial, every single little vial of white powder that they reconstituted into something they injected into their children's arms uh, was infected with the HIV virus, 100%. That same year, 
Frankie and Joe bought their first home together. We got engaged at 16. We bought our first house at 16. And Claire and Brian got married. We married in 1983, in May 1983. It's also when the schoolboys at Trelaws got their first warning that something could be going wrong. The nurses were worried. There was more gloves going on. From that moment when that first um, alert was issued, could you give me a rough history of how long it took to remove things from the market? In the US, it took about three years. I've just got an email from Michael Baum. He says he's spoken to Dr Kay Noel. She's the whistleblower they worked with on their case. And he says she's willing to be interviewed. Um, He says, drop her a text. Um, So I guess I'll do that now. Yeah, so hi, Kay. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us. Um, No problem. I think I'm the only pharma person that's ever helped out. Other pharma representatives did help out in legal cases. But Kay Noel is the only one who actually left the industry and abandoned her career because of what she saw. She speaks slowly, choosing her words carefully. Uh, And I just felt that, well, certainly the company I worked for... I can see she's wary of talking, perhaps because she's kept this private for so many years. It's the first time she's spoken in public. Kay gave Michael Baum the information he needed to crack that code, linking plasma donations and HIV infections, the one I told you about in the last episode. He wouldn't have been able to do it without an industry insider like me showing them exactly the paper trail they needed to know. Kay worked for Alpha, the Japanese company that had a base in America. She was there in the mid-70s and was in marketing. I was product manager for mostly hemophilia products. You know, my job was try to sell factor. She was invited to speak to local hemophilia groups. And the things she heard there concerned her. You know, I'd wind up sitting at a kitchen table of a family with a hemophiliac or a hemophiliac that just died of viral infection. Even in the 70s, people with haemophilia were dying from the viruses in Factor VIII. Back then, hepatitis. They thought the company should at least give them $1,000 to help with a burial. That's all they were asking for. And the companies, I, I would keep, you know, sending through these requests and they were just, every one of them was denied. Kay wanted to do something, and she started to raise the alarm. You know, I was in my 20s and fearless, so I said, well, let me take the proposal. She sent messages to people high up at Alpha. Arguing that we should be doing something to investigate the non-A, non-B hepatitis issue and figure out how to deal with it. Non-A, non-B is what hepatitis C was called back then. It was a big issue at the time, and it was a problem inside the company too. A few of Alpha's lab technicians caught it. They had abnormal liver function, jaundice, and worse. But no matter how much noise Kay made, she couldn't get anyone to listen. No one was concerned about the fact that there were some risks associated with use of the product. And of course, the companies were more than happy to just maintain the status quo. The first time it became clear that viruses could be transmitted through blood products was all the way back in the 1940s, during the Second World War, when all that blood was being sent between the Allies. Soldiers who'd had transfusions started to come down with hepatitis and malaria. 
and scientists realised that pooling blood, mixing the donations from lots of people together, made it more likely disease would spread. In response, they started heating up plasma to kill them, and it worked. But it was only used for some products. The pharma companies said that method couldn't be used to clean factor eight because it would destroy the necessary proteins. So I think there was just a general impression that they wouldn't withstand heat treatment. What do you think the main things that they could have done in the 70s when you were there for non-A, non-B that you think should have happened? I think they should have done more work looking at viral inactivation. And you're absolutely right. There were people who had already suggested heat inactivation, but there was very little follow-up on that work. They focused their attention on something else. There was a lot of research being done on, or work being done on factor eight, but it was really to improve yields, to improve... uh, In other words, they wanted to make more. To get reproducible manufacturing. You'd think a warning from one key scientist might have made a difference. Judith Graham Poole was the person who discovered factor eight, and her work led to this whole industry I've been looking into. In the 70s, she wrote to the American government and urged them to stop paid donations. She called it dangerous, expensive, wasteful and unethical. But still the practice continued. I just felt that, well, certainly the company I worked for and and none of the other companies I was aware of, uh, was really willing to invest in trying to make safer products. So in 1981, Kay decided to leave the industry. It got to the point where, you know, it it passed my ethical boundaries and I decided I have to just get away from this. Can't be associated with this anymore. She kept talking to some of her old colleagues. Do you know how the ones that you stayed in touch with, how did they react to the AIDS crisis and what was happening? We didn't really talk about it. They stayed with the industry. One of them invited me to come over and take a look at the research they were doing. And I warned him that uh, we bet how long I would be on the facility before I would be escorted off. And I won. It was 15 minutes. (laughs) Oh, so you did go? Sure. (laughs) Who escorted you off? Well, actually, the the CEO came down to see what the hell I was doing. (laughs) This was not Alpha. This was a different company. Which company was that? I, no, I'm not going to tell you. So they recognised you as someone that had spoken out even though you didn't work there? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Do you, did he say anything to you? Who? As you, the CEO, as you were escorted off? No, I mean, we both knew what was going on. Do you think you had a bit of a reputation then? Yeah. I, you want to <laughs> guess? Yeah. <laughs> The same year Kay left Alpha, the first cases of AIDS emerged in people with haemophilia. Her initial thought was, It seems obvious that it would be transmittable in blood. In 1981, a German company released the first heat-treated version. It was a safer future, a treatment without viruses, because heat melted the fatty casing around HIV and deactivated it. 
And that's when these companies finally scrabble to do their own research. And it's clear that they're only doing it because they realize now they have this competition. Donna Shaw is the author of Blood on Their Hands, a book about the American side of this scandal. She's seen hundreds of pages of internal documents from all the companies. And if the Germans can sell a product that doesn't have viruses in it, they're going to have to do the same. After the cash was invested, it still took years to bring new products to market. It's a massive machine to manoeuvre, and there was a lot of trial and error. By 1985, heat-treated products were the norm. But Britain was yet again slow on the uptake. The Safer Factor 8 was more expensive, and one politician spent months assessing the evidence. Ken Clark. But if scientists like Kay Noel and Judith Graham Poole had been listened to, if their warnings had been taken seriously and that research had started earlier, then perhaps viruses wouldn't have spread. All the people I've spoken to might never have been infected and the lives of 1,500 people with haemophilia in the UK could have been saved. Internal documents from those four companies reveal a lot about what they thought of the potential disaster. Donna Shaw sends me a few. One is from 1985, and it's written by employees at Armour. That's the company originally owned by Revlon Healthcare. A director at the New York Blood Centre found live HIV in their first heat-treated product, and they're discussing it. And they're saying, what should we do? Should we tell the FDA? Should we pull our product off the market, what should we do? And the decision is, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're not going to tell the FDA because our product has already got FDA approval. The FDA, that's America's Food and Drug Administration. It regulates medical treatments and is seen as a gold standard. The people from Armour told the New York director that he's not allowed to make his findings public. So they invoked the confidentiality clause of his contract meaning that if he tried to publish, they would sue him. And he held off. Ten months went by, so there was quite a lag time. There's something else in the note that reveals a lot. They say... This is a marketing issue. We can't allow our competitors to get a leg up on us, so we're going to just have to keep selling this product, and we'll try to improve our process for killing the viruses in our product. But in the meantime, we don't want to lose ground. The presence of HIV in Factor Eight is a marketing issue. It's about publicity and reputation. It's not a public health crisis. They're worried about the $6 million of sales they could lose, not the lives that'll be put at risk. There are many examples like that of companies putting profit over life. I've seen a few of them. They are very cold. Let's put it that way. Kay Noel, the whistleblower, is telling me about a document that stayed with her. It's the minutes from a meeting attended by representatives from all the pharma companies. They came together to discuss the growing crisis and work out a combined response. It was acknowledging the issue and, and then just putting a cost on it. Well, OK, so, so a couple of thousand haemophiliacs lose their lives. It's not cost-effective for us to take action. How do you respond to that, having worked in that industry and with those people on those products? I wouldn't have guessed that they were so callous. 
well, to put on a piece of paper, you know, to write something like that, to say it over the conference room table, maybe, but to write it and sign it, that's pretty amazing. Those minutes are in the box of files that Tom Mull, the lawyer in Hawaii, has been trying to get for me, but it's gone missing. So I ask him to tell me the details. I've heard about the document from a few credible people, including Tom. They all got together, and actually the, the biggest meeting was at a, a Howard Johnson's in Kansas City. There were representatives from all four companies, and they met at a hotel. And they talked about it openly, and how they would act together to conceal and uh, protect themselves from the unbelievable exposure they had from infecting this many people. That was the end of it as far as the, the law goes. That's when they had to stop doing it. But they did. I've spoken to a lot of survivors of infected blood, and it's hard to believe that the companies didn't do more, that there weren't more people like Kay trying to intervene, and that safety wasn't the priority. Anybody who's ever been in business school, anybody who's ever been in an MBA program, knows about this study called the Penalba case study. Donna Shaw, the author, is explaining what she thinks happened inside those four companies back then. The Penalba study was first created by an academic at the University of Pennsylvania. The setup is you and your classmates are executives in a pharmaceutical company, and you've discovered that one of your products is actually really dangerous and is killing people. What are you going to do? It's based on a real case from before the AIDS crisis. So one person is the chief scientific officer and one is the CEO. You know, everybody in the class is supposed to play a role in deciding what you do. Students are told that someone on their board is threatening to become a whistleblower. And that person says, Look, if you don't do the right thing and pull this product off the market, I'm going to run over to the New York Times and I'm going to blab. I'm going to tell them everything. They spend hours discussing their next steps, and most of them eventually decide not to withdraw that product from the market, to keep selling it. Which I find disturbing on so many levels. Number one, because people in MBA programs are the future corporate leaders of the world, right? But also I think it says a lot about human nature that once we get into that corporate environment, that our own individual morals and ethics fall aside for the sake of money and for the sake of profit. Donna did an MBA course herself, and when they did the exercise, someone in her class made a startling choice. To assassinate the board member who was threatening to tell the New York Times. Luckily, that's not one that played out in real life. This isn't to say everyone who worked in those four companies was immoral. Far from it. Douglas Starr met quite a few people who worked in the plasma trade for his book about blood. I didn't meet any of them who said, oh, the hell with it, I made money and I don't care who got sick. He had quite the experience meeting them all. A president of one of the companies agreed to meet him on a bench. Overlooking the ferry in Sausalito, California, on this date, at this hour, 
And if you're not in there in 10 minutes, I'm gone. Another told him exciting stories about the wildcat days collecting plasma in Central America. That man later testified on behalf of people who contracted AIDS. So he's honest about what he did, what he needed to do, the kinds of places he run. He was an ethical guy, enjoyed the rascally part of it, but was very serious that people needed to be taken care of. So these were complicated characters. That's the thing with this story. It's complex. There are a lot of players with different levels of responsibility, and they tend to pass the blame between one another. With that in mind, K. Noel gives me something else to look into. Nothing here happened in isolation, and what Kay says next takes me all the way back to the start of my investigation. If you thought there was anything we should highlight or people that we should speak to or kind of areas of this that haven't really been covered, what would they be? I think you should look not only at the companies, but at their customers, the prescribing physicians. The doctors. If I were a treating physician at a leading center, I would have called the manufacturers together and say, what are you doing to try to address this, this viral transmission issue? It's killing our patients. If the physicians had been screaming bloody murder, the companies would have responded, right? More on that after this short break. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Hi, I'm Henry Bodkin, a senior reporter at The Telegraph. The infected blood scandal is no doubt the biggest scandal in NHS history, and it's reared its head time and time again on my beat over the years. I've written about the lies and the cover-up, the disturbing experiences of the Trelaws boys, and the long road to justice for the survivors. Things you'll hear about in more detail in Cara's reporting on this podcast. Covering stories like these helps ensure that scandals like this one won't happen again. 
but we couldn't put the time we need into them or make podcasts like Bed of Lies without the support of the Telegraph subscribers. If you're not already signed up, you can head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast where you can get the first 30 days free. That's telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast or follow the link in the episode description. I've been talking to Dr. Leah Kaparapia about the relationship between doctors and pharma companies back in the 80s. I speak out because of my conscience, you know. Nobody will give you information like I did. Dr. Parapia ran the Haemophilia Centre in Bradford, and he thinks there was a cosy relationship that influenced doctors in subtle ways. I think it's a system. As a young consultant, I fell into this almost like a conspiracy. Money flowed in the plasma trade. Like I said, it was liquid gold. If you look at the profits of people like Baxter, they were going exponentially up in the 70s and 80s. You know, just incredible profits were made from Factor 8. That meant the four companies, Baxter, Bayer, Armour and Alpha, had cash to spend to convince doctors to use their version of Factor 8. They offered incentives like... Look, you buy our products and... We'll train your nurses, uh, we'll send them overseas, we will send your doctors for training, you know, things that I could not get from the health service. Dr. Parapia needed the extra funding at his hospital. He accepted research materials from companies and financial support for his staff. Because there was no money for them, you know, there was no money to train them. But it went further. Back then, the pharma companies held major international meetings and they'd pay for doctors to travel around the world. There was lavish hospitality. Staying in five-star, the best hotels, flying first class, being taken out to clubs, restaurants, you know, when you get there. And I'm talking about lavish, you know. Dr. Parapia didn't take any kickbacks for himself. I got uh, help with uh, sending my staff to conferences and meetings because I felt important for their education. Me personally, I always took my travel expenses, etc., from what I was allowed from within the hospital. But I'm in touch with another doctor who did experience that luxurious end of pharma money. Although not a direct payment. Professor Edward Tuddenham worked in London. He's the leading haemophilia researcher who still teaches at UCL. Companies invited doctors like him to foreign conferences. They were serious meetings, like the World Federation of Haemophilia's annual event. But they were dressed up with a schedule of entertainment, all expenses paid. And I have to say, I've been to some nice dinners on the banks of the Bosphorus or in Paris. On one trip, Professor Tudnam and his wife went to Istanbul in Turkey. I can remember a trip on a pleasure boat and a fine meal with fine wines in one of the palaces along the Bosphorus and similar outings and events in the major cities of Europe and the US. How often would you be going? Oh, one would get three or four international meetings a year and the companies would also pay for travel costs. And again, clearly... That's an opportunity for them to showcase their products. That's why they do it. But I should say, it wasn't up to Professor Tuddenham to buy in the Factor 8 for his hospital. 
He was only responsible for working with patients. I have to emphasize that these meetings are serious work meetings. Companies would present new products and data. They'd teach doctors about developments. Doctors could earn extra money if they gave a presentation at the meetings. And the companies also paid grants for research. All those trials that went on at Trelaw's school, the ones Richard and Adrian remember being part of, they were funded by companies. I would say that companies don't fund research just out of the goodness of their hearts. They naturally want to see results that could be useful to them. During the AIDS crisis, the threat of HIV in Factor Eight was like an elephant in the room. The companies didn't want to talk about it. Not until they'd brought out their heat-treated versions anyway. Did you ever have any discussions with pharma companies about infection in their products? You know, confront anyone about it or ask, ask questions about that? I think I made a presentation where I said we needed alternatives to a product that is so dangerous. How do the representatives of those companies react? Like, they're making these deadly products. Yes, they, they went very quiet, actually. The whole pharma industry is more regulated in Britain now, and that type of entertainment no longer happens. I'm glad that, that has been reined back. Uh, it, it was a abusive process. And there's a reason he says that. Do they also feel that it would influence choice of product? In the UK, now that product is all centrally sourced, uh, no, I can't see how that would happen. Back in the day, it could. Yes, it could have. As the companies offered all these perks to the doctors who used their Factor 8, instead of the safer homemade version... Britain's leading haemophilia doctor told his colleagues to keep using American products. The big one that everybody talks about is uh, about Cardiff. That's the hospital where Professor Arthur Bloom worked. He was one of the main haemophilia advisors to the government and other medics. Professor Bloom, I, I graduated in Cardiff, so he was my teacher. I thought he was fantastic, he was amazing, you know. And then I suddenly find that he, he was actually using pharma products and was getting sponsorships and stuff, you know. So things turned. Professor Bloom is quoted, if you see, that he, he was advocating in the beginning the American products were reasonably safe for hepatitis and HIV and so on. Dr Parapia has since wondered how close Bloom was with the pharma companies. After all, he's the one who said... It would be counterproductive to alter our treatment programmes. And I've seen letters Professor Bloom received that said things like, I'm afraid it's necessary to keep these recommendations confidential, largely because of the commercial implications. When somebody like that speaks to us in a conference, we like to believe what he says. We have to listen to our leaders. Professor Bloom died in 1992, but he's since faced a reckoning. In 2019, The Hospital of Wales, which is based in Cardiff, removed a bust of him from its haemophilia centre. Professor Bloom uh, has been disgraced. To this day, Dr Parapia regrets the part he played in this whole disaster. I have a feeling of guilt that I took support as well. But we were in a situation where you had to go with the flow to maintain ourselves as a 
important center, you know. A lot of doctors have suffered from the emotional fallout. Professor Tuddenham tells me an arresting example. His colleague at the Royal Free Hospital, Peter Kernoff, had relationships with the pharma companies, and he was responsible for buying Factor Eight. My colleague, Peter Kernoff, was suffering very much from stress of the situation. He had a heart attack. He was young, young chap in his early 40s. He suffered irreversible brain damage. And although he lived for another 10 years, he was completely unable to work and was under 24-hour care. Professor Tuddenham moved into research and focused on ways to purify Factor Eight. Having seen two of my patients die from AIDS-related illness, I left the centre. He was part of groundbreaking developments. He identified and cloned the Factor Eight gene. Now all haemophilia treatment is synthetic, so the risk of viruses is removed. But for many, it's too late. In all this, doctors needed to keep treating their patients and they were stuck between the companies who made Factor 8 and the politicians who gave them the funding. So I'm going to go back to the pharma companies because they actually had the power to change something here. In 1998, Tom, Lorraine and Michael, the American lawyers I've been speaking to, brought a case to trial. They were suing the four companies for infecting their client Ken Dixon with HIV. He died from AIDS in his 20s, shortly before the trial began. This is really important because it's the only case of its kind. It shines a spotlight on the behaviour of the pharma companies and the consequences for people with haemophilia around the world. After a decade of investigating, Tom, Lorraine and Michael felt like they had enough evidence to nail the four companies. In their arsenal, they had... The adverts from The Advocate, which proved the pharma companies were purposefully collecting plasma with hepatitis B in it. The interviews with inmates from Angola Prison in Louisiana. And the lot records of all the Factor 8 Ken Dixon had received, which they traced back to infected donors. And amongst them were the Arizona State Plasma Center, the Arizona State Prison. That's Michael Baum. Ahead of the trial, he, Tom and Lorraine, took their findings to the head of the Bureau of Biologics. That's part of the Food and Drug Administration that deals with blood products. So Tom said, well, just to be clear... He showed them the adverts and said... That would be negligent, right? And he goes, oh, yeah, that would be, you know, not good. That would be terrible. So they were feeling pretty confident about the case. At the trial, the lawyers for the pharma companies made life difficult. Michael remembers they were arrogant defense lawyers from top firms. And they fought aggressively. It was a very difficult litigation. They tried to uh, put me in jail uh, in more than one occasion, tried to take my license. In some instances, the tactic worked. When Kay Noel took the stand, she was ready to finally share everything she'd seen inside of Alpha. She was nervous. I was a traitor, sure. Did you get any looks or anything like that? 
Oh, sure. <laughs> what sort of thing? Well, I mean, come on. It's very, particularly in depositions, it's very antagonistic. You know, there's one of me and 20 lawyers from three or four different companies. It was not pleasant. She rustled up the courage, but it was all for nothing. She wasn't allowed to say anything. Every time she was asked a question, the company lawyers objected. There was a sidebar and they'd ask another question and a sidebar, another question and a sidebar. So I was on for a day and didn't get to say one word besides my name. How did you feel when you were on the stand and not being allowed to say your part? I was a little frustrated. I really wanted a chance to tell my story, but it wasn't to be. All this painted a certain picture for the jury of bullish companies that were unwilling to accept that their products had fatally infected Ken Dixon with HIV. The jury became so frustrated that it backfired. They thought that the defendant attorneys were objecting so much because the testimony they were hearing was so horrific and uh, the fact that they wanted to keep it out worked against them, not for them. That's Tom Mull from Hawaii. The day came for the jury to give their verdict. Did they believe the companies were guilty? Yes. We got a $35 million verdict. For Ken Dixon's family alone, and with additional money for the length of the trial, it increased. To about $56 million. But the family never received that $56 million because the judge overturned the case. They said it was too long after the event. Tom Lorraine and Michael's efforts weren't going to be wasted, though, because they'd proven that the pharma companies were responsible. The verdict that we got in in the Dixon trial was very large. Tom Mull. And we used that, we leveraged that to get a settlement for all of my clients, and it was a, a very big settlement. Their 400 or so clients were compensated with more than the $100,000 in the original lawsuit. A lot more. Those people were, quote, adequately compensated compared to the other people, not compared to any other sense of justice. How do you replace a a loved one who's lost and been through that? But we did it for uh, 11 years. We represented this group of people for 11 years until it was finally over. If the four companies had paid compensation like that to everyone who was infected with HIV and hepatitis then the true cost of the scandal would have stretched into billions. There were more lawsuits, and they did pay hundreds of millions of dollars to victims across the world. But none of it was uniform. The amounts tended to be small, and the lawsuits took years. Frankie and Joe, the couple with a scooter and a sidecar, were involved in one of these, which alleged negligence against the companies. They say the process was humiliating and stressful, and all they received was £20,000. I don't know where the whole 20 thing comes from, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a random figure. The response was preposterous. Many more of the people I've spoken to, like Claire, Jason, Richard, and the other boys from Trelaws, never received a penny from any of the companies. As part of Tom, Lorraine and Michael's settlement, people from Baxter, Bayer, Armour and Alpha had to sit down with the families and hear their heartbreaking accounts, like those I've described, of young children dying from AIDS 
and families torn apart by grief. They wanted to be able to tell the people that had done this to their children and their spouses uh, how they felt, how it affected them and everything. That was what they wanted more than anything. That giant hole in your heart that never goes away is not filled with dollar bills. So they wanted them to know what they had done. So, and they did. Boy, did they. Whew. The most powerful thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Our clients who spent three days telling these executives how horrible they were. And what this had done to them and to their families and to their deceased children. On the second day, an employee of one of the companies said, I don't think I can take this anymore. Do you know how hard it is to listen to this? And I said, yes, I do. This is what we have been listening to for years. It's about time you heard it. The company representatives were crying and deeply moved by what our clients told them. I actually saw one of them break down and cry in the hall. Yeah, I'm sure. I hope so. I don't think they really had any sort of grasp on the magnitude of the suffering that they caused. They didn't. The end of that trial could have brought an end to this terrible chapter. All the pharma company behaviour was out there in the open, their lies exposed. But it didn't end there because there was one more thing hiding in the pharma company files, and it's one of the most disturbing revelations of all. I knew I had a couple of boxes of documents about international distribution of AHF. That's what Americans call Factor Eight. I spent the summer after the uh, uh, Dixon trial going through those documents. What Michael Baum, the lawyer from California, saw in these documents is proof of how little the lives of people with haemophilia were valued. They're company memos from Qatar, which was part of Bayer, and they're from 1985, just after the Food and Drug Administration told them to withdraw their older Factor Eight from the market. The stuff that wasn't heat-treated. But they still had lots of it in their warehouses. And they didn't want to lose any money by binning it. They had another solution. Factor 8 was sold around the world, and not every health department and hospital was on the ball. Turns out that they continued to sell it in other countries. So they kept dumping their contaminated batches of Factor 8 abroad until individual countries banned the use of non-heat-treated products. They had internal memos saying that... um, Well, each of these areas are drying up. Australia's drying up and Ireland's drying up. We can't sell the non-heatrated stuff there anymore. Britain eventually stopped in 1985, as did Peru, Israel and France. But there were countries that were slower. And they said, but in the Far East, in China and Hong Kong and Taiwan, they're used to having uh, bloodborne diseases. They're used to having hepatitis B running around. They're tolerant of taking these products. We can keep selling there for the near future. When doctors in Hong Kong picked up on the fact that they were still getting the old factor, they said, Hey, how come you're continuing to deliver us this uh non-heat-treated AHF. Their response was, oh, it's the same fine non-hazardous product we've always provided you. It's been really well screened. Don't worry about it. And you have a long-term contract. You have to, like, honor it. It's pretty gross. 
and they kept selling it well into 1986, five years after that German company came out with the first virus-free version, and five years after the first AIDS case in a patient with haemophilia, just as Claire and Brian were falling in love. Having worked on this case for over a decade and learnt all about the pharma company behaviour, the revelation that companies dumped their infected blood abroad was the most shocking of all for Tom and Lorraine. To me, it was just such an unbelievable case of corporate greed. That's just beyond unconscionable that they would do that. It's actually criminal. Next time on Bed of Lies. Hi, Des, it's Cara. Hello, Cara. It's good to talk to you because we have now got some progress. It is a big development. It's one which has been sitting in the sidelines for some time. Proceedings are going to be issued against the law school. Bed of Lies is written by me, Cara McGugan, and produced by Sarah Peters at Tuning Fork Productions. The executive producer is Theodora Leloudis and sound designs by David Thomas. With thanks to Tom Gibbs and Giles Gear. To stay on top of who's who in our story and to read exclusive behind-the-scenes details, take a look inside my reporter's notebook. We'll be publishing more every week at telegraph.co.uk forward slash notebook. You can listen to the award-winning first series of Bed of Lies which investigates a very different scandal on this podcast feed. And if you're not already a Telegraph subscriber, sign up for 30 days free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.